You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 2. It's on page 1,235. Um, from, we're going to read from verse 18. It's the, to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Write. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Okay, I'm going to stop there because we'll come on to the next bit uh, in a moment. But I, this evening... um, Just a couple of things. One thing that struck me, what Sergi was saying about uh, Brock and and Andrina, maybe one or two of you missed it, that he said, if we preach the gospel, if we give people the gospel in as rich a feast, spiritually, if you like, as uh, Brock and Andrina fed them, that must have been some meal you gave them today, um, then, you know, the church will be blessed and it will grow and so on. And I think that is very, very important for us to realize we have this great feast to give to people. And uh, there is a world out there that is starving. And we've got this magnificent feast. And we we, um, don't need to be so defensive. However, I think there's a big issue. And what was said about Denmark, about Scotland and elsewhere. I think there's a big issue in the Christian church here. um, That I'll describe in this way. In the Muslim world. In or rather, the work of Christians amongst Muslims, there is something that's now called the insider movement. And this is how the insider movement works. It says that if you become a Christian when you're a Muslim, then you can still go to the mosque and you still read the Quran and you you still stay in your Islamic culture. You're just really kind of a secret Christian. You're inside. And you follow Jesus in that way because you're trying to influence people and you're, you're trying to win them over gently. And you don't really want to annoy people, not least because it can be quite expensive in terms of your life and in other things along those lines. Now, the insider movement is causing a great deal of controversy, not least amongst groups like Pakistani Christians who are horrified at what is happening. And I have a a great deal of sympathy um, with those Christians who uh, are in Muslim cultures who feel very strongly that they don't like the idea of the insider movement. But I think we have an equivalent thing here in Scotland today, and I I want us just to face and address this issue, because I think it's really, really important. Basically, there's a kind of insider movement which says, you become a Christian, you believe in Jesus, but then keep it quiet, because you've got to try and win people, not upset them, even within churches and so on, don't, don't be aggressive, which I'm sure we'd all agree, but kind of infiltrate, don't make a stand at all. Now, that's a very, very tempting position. It's tempting in lots of ways. It's tempting because um, it suits those of us um, who are more ironic in nature and we don't like creating a fuss. But there is a problem with it. And we'll see what that problem is in this situation here in Revelation. 
Thyatira was about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum, which is the church that's mentioned before, in what we now know as Turkey. It was a city, if Pergamon was a city of education, Thyatira was a city of industry, of craftsmen and merchants. And those of you who know your Bibles well will know that there was a woman who was from Thyatira who was one of the first converts. Acts 16 verse 14, one of those listening to Paul was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And can I say again, those who are on the Connect training, it, and for all of us, everything that we do is completely useless unless the Lord opens people's hearts to respond to the message. Nothing that we can do. We can never convert anyone. But I think there is a promise that the Lord will open people's hearts. So this woman, uh, Lydia, was converted. She uh, probably, I'm sure she went back to her native uh, town or native city and was probably the beginning of the church in that place. But there was a problem for the church because, like Lydia, for her business, she was a businesswoman as well, which is also quite interesting in that context. In the city, there were many trade guilds. Those of you who are from Dundee will know, and know your Dundee history will know about the nine trades, the bonnet makers and the weavers and so on, the shoemakers. I thought, Hugh, by the way, you are really pushing it today. I hope your wife sorts of deals with you when you go home because it's not just women who have shoe boxes, but they may have more, but that's... But, uh, There were these trades, shoemakers, um, bonnet makers, as in not car bonnets, obviously, but bonnets you wear on your head. Um, And in Thyatira, there were these, if you like, trade unions almost. But each of them had a patron god. The local god uh, of Thyatira, uh, a representation of Apollo, probably served that purpose for the purple cloth people. There was a feast held for these guilds, held in a temple, and they were viewed as religious occasions. The meat was offered to the gods, and uh, the occasions not infrequently ended in wild parties, uh, sexual immorality, and so on. And here's a problem. You become a Christian, and you're a purple cloth dealer. You become a Christian, and you're a, a silver worker. You don't go along, or do you go along? to these celebrations? Do you participate in these guilds? Do you go along with these rituals? Because if you don't, you're going to lose trade and business. You're going to be in real trouble. But if you do, isn't there a problem there? Well, a woman called Jezebel came along. Um, That's probably, in fact, it's certainly not her real name. And she taught in the church that it was okay to do so. So I want us to look at that and and see how that connects with us. First of all, I want you to note from the verses we've read already what we learn about Jesus. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 14, it says this, His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. 
His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And it's just one very simple lesson that strangely enough, I doubt that there's a Christian here who doesn't need to hear this again. Jesus sees it all. And why do you need to hear that? Because you think he doesn't. In your head, you know he does, or you're told he does, and your doctrine would be right about that. But if in your heart and in your mind you knew that he did, why would you fake? Why would you be a hypocrite? Why would you lie? Why would you pretend? And all of us do, in some way or other, at some time or other. And what Jesus is simply saying is, I see it all. I see it when you usher the hallelujahs and you don't mean it. I see it when you preach from my word and then you go home and do the opposite. I see it. I see your heart. And when uh, John initially saw Christ like that and understood Christ like that, he says in chapter 1 verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And Jesus is saying to the church in Thyatira and he's saying to the church in Scotland, forget about insider movements. Forget about being, um, I don't know, just, well, let's just pretend this is okay and let's pretend that is okay. Jesus just simply says, but I know. Don't pretend with me. I know everything. The bronze, the feet that are like burnished bronze, bronze was a popular metal and was actually produced in Thyatira. It was associated with the local representation of Apollo. Here, it's just simply being used to say, as in Psalm 2, that Jesus crushes his enemies, that Jesus crushes the enemies of truth. And that's why the title here is of the Son of God, because later on he will go on to talk about uh, using Psalm 2 about kissing the Son. So a very simple thing that we learn about Jesus. We can't fool him and his truth will prevail. I always think that that's a truth that we need to, within our hearts, experientially realize and know. Because you know what it's like when we, we pretend something or we say something. Um, can you imagine uh, if you use, well, everyone uses one of these things, don't they? Uh, you use your, your, your smartphone or you're sending an email or a text and you're, you're sending it to somebody. But the trouble is you press the wrong button and you send it to the wrong person. So let's say that um, I've just had a meeting with you and I'm talking with you or whatever. And then I want to, I don't know, uh, send something to Annabelle. And I say, oh, I just had this meeting with X, you know, uh, Hugh. Let's just pick on Hugh, for example. Just had this meeting with Hugh. Oh, he was a real pain today. You know, he's, he's obsessed with shoeboxes or something along those lines, you know. And it's just, it's what I really felt about the meeting. And then instead of sending it to Hugh, I pressed the wrong, instead of sending it to Annabelle, I pressed the wrong button and it goes to Hugh. How embarrassing is that? That, I mean, has anyone ever done that? I mean, I've done that and we, we do it, right. Here's the thing. 
Maybe that's the truth. Maybe we ought to speak the truth or maybe we just ought to be quiet. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, you can never, if you like, send him a message which he doesn't know whether it's true or not. You can never pretend or fake with Jesus Christ. The only person you are fooling when you do that is yourself. And it's a, it's a gross delusion. That's what he's saying to the church in Thyatira. What we learn about the church, verse 19, is that this is a good church. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. This is, this is an impressive church to be part of, at least in this sense. It's a church that was growing in its service for Jesus Christ. There was love that was shown in service. I know your deeds, your love and faith. There was growth in good works. In Ephesus, in the earlier letter written here, there was a great zeal for orthodoxy but little love. In Thyatira, there's real love and real practical service. But as we'll see, there was a carelessness about false doctrine. The church has work, service, and patience, but it's filled with sin. Can I again just issue a kind of general observation, but it's one that's very simple that would help us if we realized it. The world is never simply divided into good guys and bad guys, and the church isn't divided into good churches and bad churches. All churches are a mix. Now, some go so far that they wander away entirely from the word of God and can no longer be called churches. But churches even which are, could be orthodox or uh, really teach the Bible, even within them, churches which could be really hardworking and, and show patience and service, there can still be deep sin. In fact, there still is deep sin within that church that if the Lord is going to bless that church, he's going to deal with. So let me read on in verse 20. Nevertheless, this is about the sin. I have this against you, says Jesus. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, Jezebel is clearly a symbolic name, because he's speaking about a woman who is in leadership in this church, who is like Queen Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, 1 Kings chapter 16, all the way through to 2 Kings chapter 10. A heathen woman daughter of a priest of Baal who promoted Baal worship and sexual immorality and witchcraft as well as idolatry, murder and deceit. And Jesus says, the woman whose teaching you are listening to is Jezebel. And they're going to be horrified at hearing that. There are some authorities which have a reading here in terms of the text. I like this, not for personal reasons. You'll understand what I'm saying in a moment. But there are some readings of this which suggest that it was actually the wife of the minister who was um, preaching and teaching or writing his sermons or whatever. I don't know if that is true. But it was, 
It was the teaching that was really the problem. Because what she was saying was this. She was saying, look, we love Jesus. And we believe in Jesus. And we serve Jesus. And we do lots of good works. And we help the poor. And we care for one another. But we do have a problem in our culture. And do you know, it is far better. We don't really want to offend our neighbors. We don't want to go against the authorities. So it's far better that you go along with the trade guilds. Go to their temple worship. Engage in their parties. Eat the food sacrificed to idols. Even, she indicated, engage in sexual immorality. Now, the question of immorality here, it's not clear whether she was specifically arguing that or whether idolatry is associated with that. But in God's eyes, they are similar. She is branded by Christ as Jezebel because the Baal worship introduced to Israel by that pagan queen fostered idolatry and ritual prostitution. And here is where the problem is for the church in Scotland today. It's, I don't think, you're not going to get many people who are going to stand up and say, well, it's okay. It's okay. If you want to be sexually immoral, go for it. Why not? You're not going to get that taught in many churches. But what you will get taught is that it doesn't matter too much if you go along with the culture. You've got to be in it to win it. You've got to, you know, just go along with And that does create all kinds of problems. You do get mixed worship. And that is a danger to the Christian church. When I did the debate with Scott McKenna, some of the people there noticed that within his church there were Hindu symbols. And other symbols, New Age symbols. And there are lots of people who go, well, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? Isn't that just, you know, us reaching out to all kinds of people? And the answer is, no, it's not. It's not great and it's not wonderful at all. The church was falling prey to cultural pressure to accommodate to pagan customs and the pagan custom of idolatry. Jezebel had been warned, but to no avail. There was to be a judgment and a punishment. Now notice this, that that judgment and punishment was not immediate. The fact that punishment is not not at once sometimes causes people to go, Oh, that's okay. God's going to let me be. Isaiah 26 verse 10. Though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. It's an amazing statement actually, isn't it? Grace is shown to the wicked. How many Christians rely on grace? Say, well, grace this and grace that. And isn't grace wonderful? But grace is shown to the wicked. They do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. And I see in that a picture of the church because when I see people who are not Christians in our culture living like non-Christians, I weep for them and I say, well, that's, what, what can you expect? I'm not surprised. But what is the most horrifying thing is when people who are in the land of uprightness, in other words, they are in God's covenant community within the church. But they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. And Jesus says there is a terrible judgment coming upon Jezebel and her followers, which will act as a salutary object lesson 
for all the churches in that area. And we're back to the blazing eyes when Jesus says, I am he who searches hearts and minds. Christ knows both how we feel and what we think. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Or Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 11. Verse 12, rather. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitude of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Christ searches the hearts and minds and judges, yet judges according to deeds because our deeds indicate where our hearts and minds really are. I think that on the day of judgment, our deeds are judged rightly and properly, not as we see them, but as he sees them. Not with a superficial estimation, but in reality. It's, it's really uncomfortable to think that Jesus knows Every thought you think and knows every emotion of your heart. And he knows exactly where you are at. And what Paul said this morning, for those of you who heard Paul Clark preaching here this morning, it's so important to realize and to grasp that we can only be like Peter and throw ourselves on the mercy of Christ. I, there were several things I hadn't thought about this morning. It's just amazing that the Bible keeps bringing things out. I mean, of course I know the story of Peter. I know the story of Judas. But for those who weren't here, uh, there were two things in particular that struck me. One was that Peter's sin was as bad, if not worse, than Judas's. And I, I just assumed that Judas's sin was worse because he betrayed Christ. But Peter betrayed Christ. And the other thing that really, really struck me was that This story was only witnessed, presumably, by Peter. And yet, it's recorded in all the Gospels. Why? Because Peter obviously told people, this is what I did. And how wrong it was. And I think that in that, there's a tremendous testimony to the grace of God. Because Peter is basically saying, I failed. I let Christ down. And he still forgave me. And he still loves me. Christ examines both the heart and the mind. And I wish that God would work in our midst so much that we would have a proper fear of the Lord that it would prevent us pretending. And that we would just be for real. Not people who are constantly telling everyone else everything because nobody tells everyone everything anyway but just people who are open and real and honest. He goes on, verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. Satan's so-called deep secrets. What does that refer to? 
probably the Gnostics saying, these people who said they had inner knowledge, saying that they, they knew the deep secrets of God. Except these were not the deep secrets of God. They were inspired by Satan. The depths of Satan, so-called deep secrets, that may be sarcasm, but it's a claim to know the deep things of God, of God or a claim to have mystical power over Satan by entering into his realm and showing him powerless. I'm sorry, but you don't know the devil and you don't know his workings. And if you did, you would run a mile. Christians who are constantly going on about how they deal with the devil with this and they have power over the devil with that, you have no idea what you are talking about. Satan's so-called deep secrets, stay away from them. It is horrifying the extent to which so much of our contemporary culture is turning towards satanic stuff. The devil is real. He goes on. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Then he quotes Psalm 2. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, this is the situation. Church is in a tough place. People are being tempted to compromise. At least one teacher in the church, this woman called Jezebel, is encouraging the church to compromise. And Jesus comes and challenges the church and says, no, you don't. You don't compromise. You don't go along with this teaching. You continue to hold on to what you've got. Now, what does that mean? It's a call simply to perseverance. And in particular, a call to perseverance in true doctrine. I receive so many messages from people who, who hate this idea within the church. Oh, you're so doctrinaire. I'm glad I belong to a church that's broad and allows a huge variety of doctrinal opinion. Doctrine doesn't matter. Love does. Doctrine doesn't matter. Jesus does. Except what does Jesus say? The Jesus who matters says, it does matter what you teach. It does matter what you tolerate. There is a long and a painful struggle in trying to understand. It is so confusing for people when they come into churches and they hear different messages. And then Christians going, oh, well, messages don't really matter as long as we all love one another. No, the point is the message do matter because the message is about Jesus. There are things that are secondary, but there are things that are primary. Sometimes we may think we're not making much advance in the gospel. You hear uh, at the conference yesterday, we heard about uh, places like Nepal, where 50 years ago there were no known native Christians. And now there's 500,000. Um, sometimes we hear about churches that are just growing and developing, and it's wonderful. And, and sometimes we're part of that. But sometimes we feel that we're stuck that we're just holding ground and just holding on almost by the skin of our teeth. And Jesus says, hold on to what you've got until I come. 
It is vital to hold on to what we have. It is vital to stand ground. It is vital to be somebody who overcomes in the midst of all the storms to hold fast to Christ. Look what he says. You will receive the authority. You will share in Christ's triumph over the nations. These poor Christians in Thyatira, conscious of their helplessness, they've been promised power over the nations. It's a a crazy idea, but it's there. True believers share in Christ's rule. I will give them the morning star. What does that refer to? I think, well, actually, let me just finish with that. There's one other thing I want to say um, before that. He again finishes, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hearing, listening, understanding mark the end of this letter and all the letters. It also marks the end of the Sermon on the Mount. I have lost count of how many Christian leaders I hear who say things like, well, my kind of Christianity is the Christianity of the Sermon on the Mount. And they don't really know what the Sermon on the Mount is. But it's kind of nice, cute, cuddly Jesus who tells us to love our enemies and not to judge and so on. And they don't get the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, which is why it's, it's so ironic that Jesus says at the end of that, you've got to hear, you've got to listen, you've got to understand. And he does that in all of these letters to these churches. We've got to hear, we've got to listen. We've got to understand because of this morning star. Now, the morning star, I think, is interpreted in the light of the rest of the chapter, chapter 22, verse 16. The rest of the book of Revelation, rather. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and I am the bright morning star. So what is he saying? He's saying, hold fast to what you've got. Overcome and do my will to the end and you receive me. And he's contrasting with, in that culture, the morning star was seen as the goddess Venus. Who, for the Romans, was a symbol of victory and sovereignty. And Jesus is saying, the end of this game the end of this story, when the final curtain goes down, victory is mine and belongs to all my people. It is an absolute. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And there is a very direct challenge that Christ makes to his church. And it's this. Will you follow me or will you just make it up? Will you follow me or will you go along with your culture? Will you follow me or will you compromise in my name? Which is just such an awful blasphemy. I believe that uh, one of the significant things about the group of us being together uh, in the Connect thing is, you know, to meet our our brothers from Ukraine, for example. It's a very difficult situation that they are in. 
or our brothers and sisters in, in Poland, which in a different way is also a difficult situation. It's hard to follow Christ in those contexts. But I think it's hard to follow Christ in this context here. And the reason we don't find it hard is because we compromise. And we just, we just say, we're going to follow Jesus and love Jesus and just go along with the culture. And then we can show people Jesus and then Jesus will change the culture. And the only problem with that is Jesus says, no, follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. The culture is changed, not by a weak and wet and insipid Christianity, but the culture is changed by a radical Christianity which seeks to follow Christ. Now, and, and that is the radicalness of it. The radicalness is not in political action. The radicalness is not in um, being rude or aggressive or going to war or whatever. The radicalness is just simply following Christ with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. And um, I, I will confess this. I fail. Because the temptation to compromise is always there. The temptation to pull back. The temptation just to oh, let things be easy. It's there. But Jesus just says, don't, don't, please follow me. I know your deeds. I know your love. I know your faith. I know your service. I know your perseverance. I know you're doing more now than at first. But I have blazing eyes and I see into your heart. And I see how you're tempted to turn back. And I see how just little by little you're subtly changing and moving away. And I want wholehearted worship. I want wholehearted service. I want you to help the poor not because you're a patronizing middle class person who thinks, oh, look how wonderful I am. I want you to help the poor because you love them with the same love that I have. I want you to tell the gospel to people not because you're thinking, oh, what a wonderful Christian I am that I can go around and tell the gospel, but because you care with the same passion that I have for those who are lost. And I want you to be holy not as some kind of self-righteous prig, but I want you to be holy as I am holy because that's why I died for you. What the church in Scotland today needs and wherever you are is not more programs, not even more training or all the stuff that we've been doing. That's part of it, I think. But most of all, what is needed is very, very simply that we are wholeheartedly and fully and totally committed to follow Jesus Christ, to worship him, to love him, and to serve him. And the rest follows. Just as simple as that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are the bright morning star. Thank you that... In all the darkness and the confusion and the hurt and pains of our lives, that when we uh, look away from ourselves and look to you, that we receive so much blessing. Lord, thank you that you're calling your church from all over the world. Thank you that you're working in 10,000 ways 
in even in our lives, even though we only see a couple of them. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have even ordained to bring us here, that we might hear your word and know of your love, and that like Peter, we can commit ourselves wholly and totally to you. Lord, bless your word to us and bless each one of us here and grant us renewal, repentance and forgiveness and grant us to see the glory and beauty of Christ for we ask it in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.